This is Paul Schneiderman today on the 133rd edition of the Sports Untold podcast, also on Rainier Avenue Radio.world. My special guest is uh, University of Washington football legend Greg Lewis. Hawk show. Uh, my podcast is now on Spotify, Amazon, Google, iTunes, Podbeam. You go to sportsuntoldpodcast.net. You can also go to ploslawoffices.com. I encourage my listeners to click the like button regarding my show and go to sportsuntoldpodcast.net and the other outlets. You can go to Sports Untold YouTube and watch it as well. My new producer is Olivia Coyne. I've uh, been friends with her family for years. Olivia is a UW student doing a good job. All right, Greg, back to you. Uh, I've given, I've had you on my show quite a few times, and I, I do a similar introduction each time, but I'll scale it back a little today. Greg's Husky football legend, played for the Denver Broncos, inducted in the University of Washington Hall of Fame and the Seattle Public School Hall of Fame. Um, Greg, as I just mentioned, is a uh, one of the panelists of the Husky Hawk show with Mario Bailey and Dave Safi Muller. And you know, Greg, I got to tell you something. I believe you and Steve Kelly are each my most frequent guests. And when I mentioned to Steve when he was on recently, that he's my most frequent guest, or one of my most frequent guests with you, Steve made a little joke. Does that mean you're going to give me a ring? So, Greg, <laughs> are, Greg are you going to ask me to give you a ring? Here? So, no, I, I got a few rings. I think I'm okay in the ring department. Uh, I just enjoy coming on and talking Husky football. So anytime that uh, you want to have me on, uh, feel free uh, to, to hit me up, and I'd love to come talk football. Oh, thanks, Greg. Well, maybe I'll give you a ring in spirit then. So I had to, <laughs> if I, maybe I'll have you get you and Steve Kelly on it sometime. You know, sure, why not? Yeah. Well, today we're going to talk obviously the Huskies, and we're definitely going to go into this what's going on with the Pac 12. It's, it's in a lame duck status this year with football and the conference situation, but I appreciate coming on, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely, definitely ask you some questions. All right, Greg, here's my first question today. Mm -hmm. I asked you in a couple interviews before who's a living sports figure you'd love to spend time with. You gave a great answer, LeBron James. I think for the question of who's a deceased sports figure, I think you mentioned Muhammad Ali. So I think you gave two good answers to those questions. I'm going to narrow it a little more. Who's somebody in the business side of sports? Can be an owner, a commissioner, an agent, a sports lawyer, a labor leader, mm -hmm. someone um, – in the business side of sports, you'd love to spend time with. Mention a living person. Feel free to mention a deceased person, too. Man, that's a good question. Um, you know, just from a pure entertainment standpoint and just how interesting this individual is, um, I would love to have a conversation with Don King. And I can tell you, you know, for several reasons. One, he's such an enigmatic personality. He's polarizing, uh, but the guy was able to get a, make a lot of money in boxing as a promoter, and he was able to uh, be engaged and involved with a lot of people from Muhammad Ali to Mike Tyson um, that were some of the best ever in the, the game of boxing. And uh, he was able to navigate that world knowing that there's, you know, there's the up and up side of boxing and then there's that underworld seedy side. And he was able to kind of navigate through both of them. However he did it, it would be interesting to know and find out and to kind of get his take on uh, how boxing was then. You know, in those days, Muhammad Ali fought Joe Frazier three times. He fought Ken Norton multiple times. He fought George Foreman when they were both at their primes. And now in boxing, it seems that everyone's afraid to lose a fight. They're afraid to lose one time. So the best hardly ever fight each other. That's why I was really excited when Errol Spence and Bud Crawford fought recently. 
I thought that was one of the best fights since probably Canelo Alvarez and uh, Gennady Golovkin. So uh, I'm 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 into boxing as you might be able to tell. So I think Don King would be somebody I'd love to have a conversation with. What what a great answer! I think he's 92 years old now, and uh, he has a cool haircut too. Yeah. I mean, he, but what, I did not see that one coming, Ray. So that's that's a reason why I enjoy the, enjoy these type of questions. Any any deceased uh, business figure in sports you can think of? Like, you can come back to me later if you want. Yeah, well, I think you know, of course, uh, I believe is um, is 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 Stern, the former basketball commissioner. Is he still? Uh, is he, he still? He passed a couple of years yeah, ago. Yeah, I, you know, basketball back in the nineteen seventy nine championship that the Seattle SuperSonics won, um, the game was tape delayed. I remember happening listening to it on the radio as a ten year old. So I was a big SuperSonic fan, and from basketball to go where from where it was when the games were tape delayed and the players probably weren't making that much money to where it is now, where guys are signing $70 million a year contracts, you know, to see that evolution, you know, guys like Stern and, you know, the current commissioner and the players and guys like LeBron James who have been, um, you know, forcing the hand of uh, the, the organizations to pay players, uh, salaries commensurate to the amount of money they're earning. It would be fascinating to learn how did they grow basketball in my lifetime from where the games were, championship game was tape delayed to now basketball during the NBA season. Every team, every game is on on some channel or streaming somewhere, and they're making multiple billions of dollars. So they're paying players $60 million a year. He was not very kind and gentle to Seattle during the Sonics location battle, David Stern, but no doubt he'd be an interesting guy to spend time with. Yeah, you know, to spend time with. Great answer. Okay, I'm going to throw another one at you, then we're going we're to get to Husky football soon. Sure. Um, who is a living person in the political world or public policy world you'd love to interview or spend time with? And who's a deceased person in the political world or public policy world you would love to spend time with? All right, you're going to get me in trouble for this one, but I'm gonna okay. say, I would love to spend some time with Ron DeSantis because I am from Florida. And the job that I think he's doing down to my home state is deplorable. And I would love to spend some time with him. And it may not be a lot of talking in that meeting. <laughs> That's a great answer. I mean, why not Why not spend time with someone you don't agree with just to kind yeah. of pick their brain and stuff? Yeah. yeah. I, I think uh, there's some, uh, I, I wonder if he was in a room in a meeting with me and none of his constituents and his policy and all those are around and you ask him some tough human questions, how would he really answer those questions? Does he really believe a lot of the rhetoric that um, his his stance is built on right now? I, I wonder if he, as a human, really believes some of that stuff. So that's an answer. He's a like political figure, DeSantis. Yeah, yeah. yeah I didn't see that one coming, but I, I, he would be interesting to get to know. I'm from no Florida, sometimes I'm embarrassed what my home state is doing right now, to be honest with you. No, I understand. This thing with DeSantis is he was a captain of the Yale baseball team, Harvard Law, U.S. Mm -hmm. military. He does have some interesting, you know, fancy pedigree credentials, but mm -hmm. that's, anyhow, that, that doesn't mean that he's a great guy. But, yeah. um, but who's a deceased political figure in history you would love to spend time with? Hmm, a deceased political figure. Could be an activist, just someone involved in public policy, whatever. Yeah, um, you know, I don't want to sound, sound cliche, but, you know, my heroes, I, I, I was born in 1969. So right at the sort of apex of the civil rights movement, when 
um, laws were being signed and, you know, marches had happened and there seemingly have been a lot of progress that have been made, although we know today that there's still a lot to be done. But, you know, guys like John Lewis, um, MLK and Medgar Evers, people who were willing to put their lives on the line. And ultimately, several of them did, you know, what made them so devout in their stance I've been, I've gone on record, at least in my friend group and, you know, people who, you know, give me platforms like this. Sometimes I think that as a country, we don't continue to move forward as fast as we can because people aren't willing to, in these days to put their lives on the line. And a lot of times that's what it takes. When you look throughout history, and I'm not a big historian, but, you know, I study a little history, most real change and whether they were kingdoms or democracies or whatever came at the hands of revolution and lots of people had to die when revolutions were had and so it seems like people aren't willing to put their lives on the line these days so what made those folks you know so willing and ready uh and able to put their lives on the line for what they believe so those are some conversations i would love to have with people like john lewis by the way i greg i met john lewis once and got his autograph Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, he fortunately didn't have to give his life up, but he was willing because he was right out front. Uh, so someone like him or, um, you know, Medgar Evers, MLK, folks like that who really did put their life on the line. Great answers. Great answers. Well, let's get to Husky football now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, on this show, we we, we we have kind of a diverse uh, set of subjects we can go sure. into. Uh, Sports Illustrated has Washington ranked number six in the country. And they mm -hmm. have USC ranked nine, Oregon State ranked 15, and Oregon ranked 17. What do you think of Sports Illustrated having the Huskies ranked higher than any other Pac-12 school this year? So I'm curious if that ranking came out before USC played last week or after, because I think a lot of folks had USC ranked higher. And although they had some skilled players who looked good in that game, I think um, the fact that uh, their opponent, San Jose State, who is not a, a well-thought-of football program, gave them a little bit of trouble, might have gave people pause to why USC. Um, I wouldn't necessarily ascribe to that theory just because sometimes that first game of the year, especially if it's not an overwhelming appointment, opponent and you have some other challenges down the line, you may not show up your best. Uh, but I don't have any problem with that ranking. I think um, the, the thing that I've seen from the Huskies being an insider, being around the team is there was a reason that all these guys decided to come back and NIL is a part of it. And, you know, having that COVID year and all those things are part of it and wanting to get their position in the draft might be another part of it. But these guys to the team said that they have come back because they want to win it all. And when you have a team that has that, that mantra and that perspective and that dogged determination and they set that goal and they're doing something every day to achieve it, they're going to go for it. So that tells me that they at least have the mentality part right. They're going to put in the work to get it done and they have the confidence and belief in themselves that they can compete and play with anybody. And those are things that have to be a part of that winning recipe. So starting them out at six, it might seem high. But that's their mentality. I mean, they would probably tell you we should be ranked higher. Uh, you know, last year going 11 and two, winning the bowl game uh, against Texas. You can say who didn't play all you want, but they beat them and they, I thought they handled them really well. Um, and just the number of people that are coming back, especially on the offensive side. And the defense has to be better than last year. 
it started to get better at the end of the year. And from a personnel standpoint, they had some key people uh, get healthy, like Olafosio. Uh, ZTF is now two years removed from his Achilles injury. Uh, Braylon Trice is looking like one of the best pass rushers in the country. So the defense should be situated to play better than last year. So those guys believe that they can. Um, I know Oregon State had a great defense last year, and now they bring in a quarterback who was his class. He was number one or number two quarterback in the country, depending on who you ask. Um, uh, DJ Ungalale, I think is how I pronounce his name, uh, coming in. And last year, they gave us a really tough game. And had they had a good quarterback, that game could have gone any, either way. So Oregon State's going to be good. Oregon always has a ton of skilled players every year. They're in the top 10 in the recruiting rankings, so they're going to have talent everywhere. They're going to score points. Uh, last year, I think we both scored in the 40s. Our, uh, no, yeah. No, they scored 34, I believe. But both of our offenses uh, clicked, and, and, and we were able to make some defensive stops down the stretch that got us the win. And USC's FC, they got the – Heisman Trophy winning quarterback coming back. They got weapons everywhere on offense. If they get a little better on the defensive side of the ball. And then Utah's the two-time defending conference champions. It took them a while to get to that conference championship level. But now that they're there, they want to hold on to it. Two years in a row could be the first team in a while to win it back to back to back, maybe since the Pete Carroll USC days. So I think all of those teams are going to be strong and be competitive and the thing about this year that's different than last year, all the best Pac-10 teams are going to play each other. We're going to play Utah, USC. You know, they're going to play each other, Oregon. And so we'll get a chance at the end of the year to find out who's the best Pac-12 team, even though this is the last year to Pac-12. And I, I, one question I, I wonder about is can a one-loss Pac-12 uh, Pac team still make the playoff? Because it's, it's just so hard to go through the Pac-12 unblemished it, it very very rarely happens we haven't done it since 1991 so you know it'll be interesting to see if whomever comes out of the pac 12 if they have that one loss can they still get in the playoff Greg, a lot there a lot of a lot of good analysis there you mentioned the washington defense and the huskies mm -hmm. i believe ranked about 100th in the country last year in the past mm -hmm. defense mm -hmm. are you feeling better about it this year yeah the, the, here's the thing the Washington pass defense wasn't great last year by any stretch of the imagination, but there was a, a stretch of about five games where anywhere from three to all five of our starting secondary players were out for injury, banged up. We were playing a lot of young kids and even young kids that were banged up. And we just could never get healthy fully on the back end. And now we have an opportunity this year coming in, you know, folks are healthy. Um, I do like the, um, you know, second team all conference player that transferred in from Oklahoma State uh, is playing corner. Mish Powell is able to slide in. He's a bigger corner. He was on the outside last year. You want your bigger corners playing in the slot where they can use their hands a little more, where they can get a little more physical. So he's playing in the slot. Um, you move the person who played in that spot. Dominic Hampton is able to move back to safety, which I think is a more natural position for him with that strong safety. Asa Turner, hopefully another year of football. He's gotten sure on that back end, especially tackling. And uh, and I think there's Muhammad, the name of the corner that transferred in, I believe. Uh, so I think you have a secondary now that is more experienced 
and healthy at the beginning of the year. We came in right off the bat, Mish Powell um, and the uh, the transfer last year were both hurt on the corner from day one. So I think being healthy gives us an opportunity to really shore up that back end. I'm not saying we're going to vault to being top 10, but there's a lot of room between 100 and the top 10. So if you're the 25th best or 30th best, and now you have ZTF fully healthy on one end and Braylon Trice, who was number two in the country in pass rush win rate last year, both coming off the corner, applying more pressure that helps your secondary a little bit. And all those guys being a little more experienced. Feel a little better about it. Good to hear for the Browski fans. All right. You you mentioned that Caleb Williams from USC won the Heisman last year. He has a shot at being the second person to win two Heismans. I think Archie Griffin, the second one too. What do you think of, of Michael, um, Penix's chances. Penix or Penix? I've never had it. Penix. Penix. What do you think of Michael Penix's chances to win a Heisman? Yeah, I think Michael Penix has the skill set. We have a good enough team that's going to be in the running down the stretch, at least I hope, uh, for national uh, playoffs and all of that. He has two of the best receivers in the country throwing the ball to. He has the best offensive coordinator, in my opinion, by far in the country, designing plays, drawing up plays. So he's going to have the statistics. He's going to have the numbers. Um, Hopefully the team will have the number of wins. And then it comes down to, one, what is the competition doing? You know, how good of a year is Caleb Williams having? You know, if they play head-to-head, which they're going to if they're both healthy, um, what that looks like. Uh, And then, frankly, you know, the, the, the one thing he can't control is sort of that national aura. You know, USC has... A list of Heisman Trophy winners. Michigan probably has some Heisman Trophy winners. Alabama has Heisman Trophy winners. We don't have one. You know, Steve Edmond is the closest thing. I think I'm the third closest that we've ever had. And I finished like seventh. We've had like maybe three or four people finish in the top 10 in the Heisman Trophy rate uh, all, uh, all time. So the voters have to overcome a lot. You know, if the numbers are similar and the records are similar, you're, they're always going to pick a USC guy or something like that, in my opinion. But if we can beat USC, and I don't know exactly when the Heisman Trophy final ballots are due, but if we beat SC and come out of the Pac-10 championship and can make the playoffs and the SC doesn't and some of these other guys don't have the big years that I know Michael Penix will have, then he'll have a shot. But it really is going to have to be something extraordinary to me. Like we're going to have to make the playoffs or the finals and whenever that voting happens co- coinciding with that. It would be fun to, to at least see Michael Pettix be on the Heisman debate stage in New York. Yeah, that'd be nice. I mean, the top three, I know they used to have a top four sometimes, uh, but top three, I think, you know, from a his, his numbers are going to justify him being there, I believe for sure. Greg, we've mentioned you and I have talked about USC a couple of times so far in the so mm-hmm. far in this podcast. And Jen Cohn, the longtime University of Washington athletic director, as we know, left last week. It was mm-hmm. a bombshell news when she decided to leave the UW to become the USC athletic director. Yeah. And uh, Greg, you worked in the UW athletic department. You you, you know the program pretty well. Mm-hmm. When I talk to people in Husky Nation, I get a lot of different thoughts about Jen leaving. I, I have some who say it's a significant loss, some who are mixed mm-hmm. about it, and some kind of think it's good riddance. Maybe it's not a horrible thing that Jen left. How, mm-hmm. how do you analyze Jen Cohen leaving UW? Well, Jen Cohen leaves um, a legacy having done some really good things. I think, um, you know, hiring Kaylin DeBoer was a home run for her. Um, I think 
with the mess that was made of our conference, you know, going back to Larry Scott, you know, and, and I'm not laying this all on his feet because the college presidents were his bosses and they watched him fumble over and over again. Don James would have never put him back in, by the way. I fumbled once and that was the only <laughs> reprieve I got, but he fumbled and then killed Klopp not being able to, you know, wield influence to get the deal done. All she was able to take all of that mess and, and create a path to us getting into the big 10, I guess, uh, is the name of the conference and will probably stay. So she has done some good things here uh, at the end of her career. Certainly people are going to hold the, the Jimmy Lake hiring and the, um, the basketball coach uh, uh, hiring and saying that she missed the mark there. Um, no one bats a hundred or a thousand percent or a hundred percent or whatever you want to call it. Uh, so she's done some good things and she's had some, some areas where she could improve. Um, there are some other things, I think, from the administrative standpoint um, that uh, could have been done better. And there's some things she did good. So I think it's it's the mixed bag. It's the, you know, she did some good things and she did well enough, especially down the stretch here, that uh, program, think about USC and USC athletics. And Nobody's a thousand batter, thousand hitter. Yeah. But, USC uh, yeah, is a great program and they're always striving to try to find the best and find people who are going, who they believe are going to do a good job. And they believe in her. They believe she can. Now they've made some hires that have been questionable over the years. So we'll see. But, you know, personally, I, I got a chance to work with Jen going back to 2000 and um, you know, I've seen her grow in her career in athletic administration, becoming one of the best fundraisers there is. And I've seen her make some good calls and good decisions, but you know, again, nobody bats a thousand and she certainly, um, has had her, her 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 mistakes or issues or, or whatever you want to call it, um, where she wasn't necessarily as successful as she would have, I'm sure, hoped to be. But I think as far as the department goes, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to find someone who they know and believe will do a great job, you know, a football person, somebody who has a lot of, um, I guess, experience and has had a lot of success in their back pocket. We're going into the Big Ten, so that's got to be attractive because we know what their upward mobility is for that conference. Um, so, and just we've shown a commitment to football. We got a great coach, um, and football drives the dial. So, I think this is a great opportunity to find a really, really good athletic director who's football focused. Next any names, <laughs> great. Any any specific names out there that intrigue you as the next Washington athletic director? You know, I'm going to be honest, I haven't thought about it or looked into it enough. I've been pretty busy. Um, you know, I've heard the name uh, of the athletic director from Washington State be mentioned. He's done a good job there, um, and I know he has Big Ten roots, um, so ultimately he may be interested. I don't know if they're going to reach out to him or not, but, you know, that's an easy name to throw out there because of their proximity. And, again, uh, he has been doing a good job at Washington State. I think some of the other conference schools should be, you know, checking in with their AD to make sure that he, he's, he or she's happy with their package. Uh, because when one person gets, you know, cannibalized, it, you know, causes others to look within as well. Um, but I would hope that it's an established athletic director and not an up and coming. That would just be my, my hope. Up and coming could do great, but knowing that we got to navigate, you know, this, this, 
minefield of college athletics right now with the conferences cannibalizing each other and changing and trying to negotiate deals and all those kinds of things. Somebody who has a lot of experience doing that. And if time comes and we have to hire a new football coach at any time in the next five years or so, that we have someone who has that wherewithal to be able to do that and somebody who um, you know can look at what's going on within our athletic department right now and see changes that need to be made and figure out a way to get them done. Los Angeles is an interesting place. Do you think Jen Cohn's a good fit for the whole LA scene? Yeah, <laughs> I think Jen Cohen, uh, Los Angeles is a city of entertainment and it's a city of, you know, um, getting in with the, you know, the, the in crowd and the in people. And Jen has a knack for being able to do that. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I don't know as well as you do, but I, I can well, see that. The one, the, the group of people that I know that love her the most at the University of Washington are our big donors. And she's had a lot of success with them. And that's going to be critical, obviously, at a place like USC, getting in with that, you know, old, that group of folks who have really been supportive of US, USC football. Greg, what do you think of uh, Colorado hiring Deion Sanders? We're only going to the same conference with Colorado and Deion um, this season. But uh, you think he's going to add some spark to that program? Like, give, give me your take on the uh, Colorado Deion Sanders hire. Yeah, for Colorado, I think it was a, a smart move. It was a great move. I mean, they've already shown return on results. When you look at the spring game and how many people turned out, I think it was over 40,000 people turned out for their spring game and they charged people for it. And um, it shows that people are interested in Deion Sanders. And, you know, the thing that I've in my life that I've known about winners is typically you know, they learn things along the way of what winning organizations look like and what winning um, needs in order to happen and how you foster a winning environment. And Dion has won quite a bit in his career, you know, from Florida State days to Dallas, and the 49ers, and then went to Jackson State as a head coach and became very successful there. So he's learned some winning formula things. I will say this. I think the Colorado turnaround is bigger than he might assume it's going to be. Um, and maybe he assumes it's going to be real, real big, but he's just talking really confident to instill that confidence in his players and in his organization so that they can have that, you know, confidence going in. But uh, I think it was great for them. I think um, if, if Deion Sanders can bring that winning culture and attitude and hire the right coaches and get Colorado elevated, I think it'll do, um, you know, be a great deal for them. And I know there's a lot of talk out there about how long will Deion stay? Who knows? But I do think this is one thing that I do believe, and this has nothing to do with Colorado. Deion Sanders is good for young men. I've gotten, I don't know him personally really well, but I've read about him. I've observed him. I've seen and heard what people who have played for him and had an opportunity to engage with him have said. And, you know, the impact that he's had on different areas and lives and environments. And I think Deion Sanders is really good for young, especially, you know, young men who come from the inner cities and come from, you know, circumstances similar to his. Uh, he's been able to get to the mountaintop and, you know, he's left left breadcrumbs and a, and a roadmap along the way and he's willing to share that. So I think he's good for those kids in Colorado. It's just kind of interesting with Dion how years ago he was kind of seen, Greg, let me know if I'm characterizing properly, a little bit of a renegade player, I guess. It's just kind of interesting how Decades later, he's seen as a mentor, and it's just interesting. It's like a time machine thing, isn't it? Yeah, Dion's always been honest, saying that he created the whole prime time and prime image and persona as sort of a marketing deal 
one to you know elevate his ability to um, capitalize on revenue, which again, for so long, colleges especially, but even in the pro ranks, they've controlled um, your name, your image, your likeness, your marketing ability. And Dion, you know, like a Floyd Mayweather and some of those folks were one of the people said, I can create my own, you know, I'm, I'm not a businessman, but I'm a business man, like Jay-Z said. And so I'm going to create my own business and persona. And to me, that's smart. That's something that he can teach to others. And so even in that, I think he was being a mentor. He was just kind of ahead of his time. And so um, for me, you know, he said he created that mantra, but the who Dion is, if you've ever gotten to know him, you go back and you meet his parents and where he's come from. He's always been this, you know, down to earth, you know, old school values. And it sounds weird to say, but in some ways even humble, you know, when he's away from the limelight and all of that. And I think he has a lot of lessons that he can teach. But, you know, being primary in those is, is take control of your own image and take control of your own ability to market who you are. And that's given him a greater platform today. And because of that platform, he's able to, you know, speak into people's lives and people are able to listen or are interested in listening to what Dion has to say. Well, Greg, I appreciate those insights about Dion Sanders. There was a 60 Minutes episode on him about a year ago before he took the Colorado job, and mm -hmm. I think he was at Jackson State. And interesting guy, no doubt about yeah, it. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, I remember you and I have talked over the years about some hypotheticals about the Pac-12 breaking up and the UW and Wazoo going in separate conferences. It just struck me, Greg, as like sports junkie conversation talk, but mm -hmm. now it's reality. <laughs> now, yeah. now it's actually happened that four Pac-12 schools are headed to the, to the big – 10 and, and Arizona and Utah and, and Colorado are leaving. Greg, break it down. What's just your take on all this conference shuffling now? This, <laughs> this yeah, know. I will say this this uh, was an inevitability. This has been happening for a long time. And I think, you know, when you think about what's driving this, what's been at the seat of it, you got to look outside of just college athletics and start thinking about the big, ne the big networks, the ESPNs and the Foxes on wanting to own the market share of college football broadcasting so that they can advertise and make billions and billions of dollars. And so driving that, if you think about, you know, say a, a Fox network, we get the big 10 and we get to broadcast them. We got 10 great teams and good and, and four great markets. Well, what if we had 20 teams and nine great markets? We could advertise even more. We can get a bigger viewership on the weekends. And so again, that's driving the conferences to expand because now the conference say instead of getting a $800 million deal and splitting it up, you know, 10 ways, let's get a $4 billion deal and split it up 20 ways. That still is net positive for us and the teams in our conference. So it's been driven externally because of that. So this was always going to happen. I think the disappointing part for me is, you know, how every year in Major League Baseball, especially, I think there's always at the trade deadline, buyers and sellers. There are teams who are going to be making a run to the championship, so they're buyers. And there are teams who are gonna kind of fold and fall aside and they're sellers. It's sad that the Pac-12 wasn't a buyer in all of this, that we're sellers. And the Pac-12, should have been a conference that, in my opinion, should have been absorbing and pulling in other teams. 
but for lack of good leadership at the top. And that's not just Larry Scott, like I said earlier, that goes with the, the university president, some of the smartest people in the world, leading some of the best research institutions in the world, you know, were either apathy, apathetic, I'm sorry, or sleep at the wheel, or didn't care, or complicit in allowing Larry Scott to make bad decision after bad decision after bad decision and not hold him accountable. And the guy walked away with millions of dollars in his pocket and not being able to, you know, recoup from that when we hired Larry Kilkoff. I, I apologize if I'm botching his name, but um, it's sad that we're not part of the, 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 the evolution of college football, that we're going to be one of the footnotes of a great conference that went away, like the Southwestern Conference. You know, this, is, this has happened over time, but I think now we're headed towards two, three, four at the most major conferences, maybe two at some point. And it really just being two megas and you're playing East Coast, West Coast and, you know, all that in between. Because uh, I don't think this by any stretch of the imagination is over. I think there will be more um, absorption of teams into other conferences and conferences breaking up. You know, the ACC is fortunate because they just had, you know, signed a big long term deal. But Florida State and Clemson are still talking about is there a way we can get out? <laughs> you know, they have to come up with probably several hundred million dollars in order to do it, but it's not done. It's not over. So I think this is something that was going to be happening. The money's driving it. Um, it'll continue to evolve. I'm just saddened that the PAC conference couldn't be a buyer instead of a seller. Greg, I, I got to tell you something. Great analysis. And your, your analogy there to the Pac-12 and the Major League Baseball trading deadline. Great one. Why couldn't the Pac-12 be more of a, of a seller than more of a, yeah, your buyer-seller mm -hmm. analysis? It's just sad they became a seller. And it, yeah. it, it's just, I, I had, that's a great analogy. It, it's really a good point. Um, so much stuff we can talk about this conference stuff. I mean, it's just overwhelming, all the, all the scenarios that you know, what could happen in the future, too. Uh, what's your take on the Apple Cup? Should it continue or will it continue? I think it should. And I've, I've seen examples of that where interstate rivals are not in the same conference, but they still play each other each and every year. I think it should happen, but I think they should revamp it. And, you know, we've asked Washington State for years to consider changing how we did the Apple Cup because, frankly, it's a revenue loss for Washington to play that game every year. And, you know, We've asked them to consider, let's just play it over at Seahawks Stadium every year. And it's a neutral field, but yes, it's in Seattle. So ultimately they didn't want to do it, but it would make more money for them as well. A lot of people criticized me on uh, KJR when I said we've been subsidizing Cougar football for decades now. And they told me, I didn't, Greg, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, this is a, a guy who thinks he's smart, but isn't and rattling off its revenue share and conference and all that. But what people fail to realize, yes, we there's a revenue share on the television revenue and all of that marketing stuff. But when it comes to stadium ticket sales, every school gets the money for their stadium ticket sales. Washington doesn't pay Oregon to come to the UW and split the ticket sales. With them. We don't pay USC or any of that. They keep their ticket sales, we keep ours, except for one game. And the traditional rival clause in the Pac-12 or Pac, yeah, whatever conference has always been the traditional rival game, the split 50-50 between the two participating schools. 
And that's how it has to be according to the conference agreement. Well, there's only one scenario in the PAC conference where the stadium size is a tremendously large gap and difference between the two schools. And that's Washington, Washington State. Every other game, the stadium sizes are very similar. So if the ticket prices are averaging $100 and we sell 76,000 tickets, that's $7.6 million that we get. Well, we got to split that with Washington State. Then we go to their stadium and it's 42,000 seats. That's $4.2 million. They split that with us. Now, you can do the math. If I get all $7 million my year and they get all $4.2 million their year, we still come out ahead. But because we split it, it causes us to lose about $1.56 million in revenue that we give them. So they, they benefit from the game being at Washington. And every other school doesn't have that problem like we do because their stadium sizes are very similar to the school that they're competing against. So if Washington State were smart, they would say, let's have it at Seahawks Stadium, six, 65,000 seats every year, 6.5 million, and we split it. So it's a 3.2, and I'm sure all kinds of sponsors would come on board and all kinds of things to make the money even larger. But just from a ticket sales revenue, um, it could be a boon for both teams. But you water it down by going over to Pullman and only getting 42,000 seats uh, ticket sales that year. So Washington State would be smart if they said, let's do this Apple Cup every year, but let's do it over at Seahawks Stadium. You sound like an, econ an economist, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just simple math. And, you know, I worked in the athletic department. Every year we would look, we would ask the PAC 10, 12 to reconsider this because we were losing money and we were the only school that loses money based on that traditional rivalry agreement. Arizona and Arizona State, similar size stadiums. USC, UCLA, similar size stadiums. Colorado, Utah, Oregon, Oregon State, Arizona, Arizona State. The only school where there was a huge difference was Washington, Washington State. I, I never realized, I quite comprehended that the stadium size discrepancy between Barton Stadium and Husky Stadium. It's very interesting points you bring yeah, up. Over 30,000 seats. Right. <laughs> I have read over the years, Greg, that the local Pullman economy, Whitman County economy, does pretty well during the Apple Cup, like a lot yeah, of small I'm, restaurants over there and things like I'm that. I'm sure to some degree, but again, if you get sponsors involved and all of that, for the school itself, you're going to make twice as much money or a significantly more by having a game in Seattle at a Seahawks stadium than you are there. Maybe somehow you, you know, through those sponsorships agreements, you let some of that money get down into the local economy. A lot there. Uh, Greg, I know you got to leave right before 40. So I'll try to get about maybe 15, 18 more minutes in because mm -hmm. I so many, so much fun going back and forth with you. Let me do a quick retro. Um, Husky coach, Kalen DeBurr, what, what do you think? Uh, you think he's going to be the guy for the rest of 2020s? Are you worried he can leave? What, 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 put on the Greg Lewis crystal ball about Coach. About well, coach as far Hall. as the University of Washington is concerned, we need to hold on to him as long as we absolutely can. This guy um, has been a winner at every stop, and there's a reason why. And it's a winning formula, a winning recipe. And then when you give someone who – has that piece and then you give them the resources that they need the sky's the limit and there's no reason that we can't continue to be good every year and that we can ascend into the playoff level and maybe even win a national championship uh with him at the helm um of course he's gotta you know hire the right assistants you know guys like ryan grubb aren't gonna be 
uh, happy being assistant, although we pay him a lot of money to be an assistant, $2 million a year as an offensive coordinator um, is, is quite a package, but he's going to want to be a head coach at some point. Teams are going to come after Ryan Grubb. You know, we get into the Big Ten and let's say, you know, a, a, a Michigan a Harbaugh leaves and all that. Ryan Grubb, why wouldn't he be a big, big target? So I think the, you know, from a standpoint of Washington, we'll try to keep him as long as we can and forever if we could. I think the threat is, is you know, does USC lose their coach? Does Michigan lose their coach? So Ohio State coach at some point, you know, whatever. Um, one of those programs come after him. And that's the threat. I think he's that good that he has to be, you know, one of the most well-regarded. If he goes out this year and repeats what he did last year and or even gets better, um, he's got to be the top of everybody's coaching search list when people are looking for it. And I don't think we have to worry about, you know, teams that aren't on the level of Washington, aren't in the conference like the Big 12. But when you start talking about the, the USC's and the Michigan's and teams like that, then, you know, there's always that possibility. DeBurr seems to win everywhere he's gone, whether as a coordinator or as a head yeah. coach. He, his, his, I mean, Indiana, he did well. I mean, just it's pretty incredible what he's done at different programs. Yeah, he's absolutely uh, a winner. So I'm, I'm excited about having him. Uh, you know, again, Jen Cohen is going out on top of a really, really good decision that she made and a great hire. Greg, you know, one thing that's come up, and, and you and I may be similar. I, you know, growing up in the '70s and '80s, I, I well, the, I guess the pack eight ended up when Arizona, Arizona State came in, but I'm kind of old school. I like the original Pac-8 schools together. What do you think of some talk, it probably isn't going to happen, but some talk that the Big Ten should just recreate a Pac-8, an old school Pac-8 division on the West Coast and just invite Stanford, Cal, Oregon State, and Washington State and newly configured uh, Big Ten. What will be your take on that? Well, I think ultimately that could happen down the road. Right now, it's not going to happen because they've already negotiated and signed on the dotted line in their television deal. So if you bring in new people, especially those who don't bring large television markets, you're not adding anything other than taking away money from your current teams and splitting the pie up amongst more teams. So, you know, think about it. We got $3 billion. We're going to split it amongst these 10 teams and then these other three are getting a smaller or four are getting a smaller share um and now you're going to add some more and give even more money away and take out so when they get to their next television deal if those teams are viable uh acquisitions and they have played football at a high level and they feel like they could bring something to the table and they're playing that game with the sec or whomever else might be acquiring teams then it might be attractive for them. It would make sense logistically to have a PAC division or a Pacific Coast division of the Big Ten. Absolutely. But again, you got to go back to it only makes sense if it makes dollars. <laughs> right, right. All right, Greg, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, I got a question for you. And you have a lot of experience. You've worked, you've worked in college athletic administration. You, you now work at the YMCA. You've, you have a you played football. You have a lot of experience in 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 the organizational worlds and sports worlds. Now, now, so what would you do, Greg, if you were advising Washington State University and Oregon State and Cal and Stanford? How would you advise these schools on what they should do right now? I know it's each program's different, but start with Washington State. How, what would you advise the Cougars to do right now at the conference shop? Like if you took off your Husky hat, you were you were a Cougar advisor. Yeah. Well, there's a short-term best answer and a long-term best answer. The short-term best answer is stay in the PAC conference, you and Oregon State, 
and 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 your attorneys and your presidents having conversations with the WAC or the Mountain West and try to get them to join the Pac-12 because there's a amount of assets that the Pac-12 has and that once the conference is dissolved, the remaining teams will recoup all those assets. I so, saw that, right? Yeah, there's some assets that are cash related and, you know, related to the Pac-12 network and the studios and, and, and all those kinds of things that there's um, assets that Oregon State and Washington State, if, you know, uh, the ACC takes Stanford and Cal and they go or they go somewhere else, if they remain and can bring those other conferences into the Pac-12, then that would be a, sh a smart short time because that could keep them, you know, financed at the level they are right now for a few more years. But when you start thinking long term, is that the best scenario long term? If you can get into a conference like the Big 12, that would probably be a better long term scenario and or medium term. What I would say is, is try to get into the Big 12, sign like a four year agreement, five, whatever number of years. And then when the Big 10s, um, new TV deal comes up, you know, if you're available at that time, you might have the Big Ten wanting to come in and bring you in. Um, but in the short term, if you don't see a path in any of those directions, you know, stay in the Pac-12 and try to get those. And that's this is true for Oregon State. I would say the same thing for them. Try to get those teams to come join you, collect the assets that you have. And then um, when some of these teams uh, or conferences get to their next television deal. And if you're still playing at a high level, you might be able to get in. Greg, I just read John Wilner's column. He's the, the Pac-12 columnist. And he brought up your points the other day in a column that that, there could, that Washington State, Oregon State especially, could be incentivized to not leave the Pac-12 right now. Yes. That's something yeah. you shared as well. Yeah, they absolutely can stand. To, and if they do dissolve and leave and go to another conference, then whatever those assets are will be spread amongst all 12 of the former teams since there'd be nobody around. But there could be some immediate um, return if they decide to stay as a Pac-12 um, and bring some other teams into the conference. Would you give Cal, Stanford, Oregon State similar advice? You would give Washington State about what to do? Well, Oregon State, definitely. Washington, Oregon State, I would say the exact same thing. Cal and Stanford... Um, because of, I think, you know, their academic status and prowess, and they're in the Bay Area. Let's not kid ourselves, a huge television market. If Stanford and Cal, um, if Stanford could get back to the success they're having on the field and they generated just like they really cared about sports and athletics, Cal, you know, did the same thing, and you could get that Bay Area market uh, energized around college football, that they would be very attractive to any conference, the Big Ten, Big 12, because now you got two teams that are playing good football if they, you know, invest in football. And now you got the San Francisco, the San Jose, you know, the whole Bay Area market. If they, you know, catch fire around college football, now you're talking about an opportunity to bring eyeballs to the TV sets to increase your package that you're selling to, you know, commercials and you know, all that kind of stuff. So it can really enhance your television deal. So if I'm those two, I'm going to invest in football, you know, as much as I can. And I'm going to try to get into one of these major conferences and really raise the, pro raise the profile of my teams. But you would right now, Greg, in late August of 2023, you would advise the four remaining PAC 12 schools to stay in the conference. Well, I think, if Stanford and Cal can get into one of the major conferences, I would advise them to do that. Right. Okay. Washington State and Oregon State, different different scenario. 
Greg, you played for the late, great coach Don James. Where do you think Don James would be on all this uh, conference shuffling going on? He would probably do what Chris Peterson did, step down <laughs> and, and say this is not, you know, the college football. Well, I, you know, I, I, and that's an assumption. But Don James um, was a straightforward guy. You know, he really um, thrived on, you know, having routine and doing things a certain way. And with all of this NIL stuff and guys can transfer and, and, and leave all the time and new people having to recruit him, you know, it would be interesting to see how he would have felt about that because he was so structured in his approach to what he did and everything was scripted out and everything was, you know, uh, was, was so regimented. It would be interesting to see how he would thrive in this, you know, era of being in flux and moving, you know, changing in midstream and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I didn't know Don James. You obviously played for him and knew him, but he kind of struck me as kind of a basic Midwestern guy, as you said, that wanted to keep things simple and probably didn't want players uh, having too much clout, too. Would that be fair? Um, I think he, he could change with the times on that. Okay. Um, because I think ultimately, you know, those were the rules back then. And so, you know, we always followed the rules. So if the rules were shifted and changed, he would be able to shift and change with that part of it. I just think the uncertainty of who's going to be on your team, you know, halfway through the season because of the transfer portal and how much money were you going to have to raise to go out and keep a guy from transferring and going to another team and it had nothing to do with football, you know, those kinds of things, you know, would be harder for him to have to, you know, fit into his world of, you know, regimented, scripted, you know, same everyday kind of routine stuff. Great. Let me make two or three more questions and I'll let you go. How's that? Sure. Good. Um, back up real quickly. Uh, the assumed starter, Cameron Davis, for the Huskies, um, running back, got hit mm -hmm. with a lower body injury. I think he's out for the season. Yeah. How does the Washington running game look, Greg? You have a unique perspective as a former Washington running back. Yeah, I think, you know, we're fortunate that we won the transfer portal battle to get Dylan Johnson for sure. I mean, <laughs> right now, had that not happened, we would be in a much worse position than we were in. Having said that, um, I think in today's game and even in, in my era, having two really good running backs who both play all the time is an advantage. I'll give you an example. In 1990, um, we had two other really good running backs other than myself on the team, being O'Brien, Jay Berry, but they hardly ever played. They And they never really played during, the, you know, the crunch time of the game when, you know, you had to make plays and all of that. They were really talented, but they just didn't play that much. So when I hurt my knee against UCLA, Bino comes in, but he's not quite ready to carry the load for a full football game. Fast forward a year later. A. Barry, Bino, Brian, who are both playing all the time. And there were times that season, you think about the Nebraska game, where Jay Berry's 80-yard touchdown run saved them that game. You think about the Cal and the USC game, Bino had two huge runs down the stretch that gave the Huskies breathing room to win. So they needed both. It would have been fantastic to have Cam Davis and Dylan Johnson this year, two running backs that are both going to play a lot, who complement each other, who both do everything well, block, catch, pass protection. Now you're down to one who has that experience. The other guys may end up being good, but they don't have that experience like a Cam Davis did 
last year, getting all the carries like Dylan has. And Dylan has been nicked up in his career. I think he had 90 carries, 89 carries last year and 89 the year before with about 45 to 50 receptions on both of those years. So he's been nicked up a little bit and missed some time here and there. So if he gets nicked up now, what does the running back room look like then? How deep are you at that point if he goes down? If you got Cam Davis, he goes down, you still got Cam. So it's always better to have the two. Uh, having said that, I think this offense is built on throwing the football. It's built on, you know, the 2,000-yard receivers of Michael Penix and, you know, tossing the ball all over the field. So if we can keep Dylan healthy and keep him in the games each week doing what he can do, then we should be okay. Um, you know, not necessarily a lot of drop-off, but it would have sure been great to have those two guys for sure. Good points. Good points. Greg, real quickly, I know you're a uh, former member of the Denver Broncos. I think you remain a Broncos fan, but uh, the Seahawks are predicted. You're, you are you do live in Seattle, so I can ask about the Seahawks. The Seahawks are predicted by Sports Illustrated to win the NFC West. What do you think about Geno Smith and the Hawks this year? Um. I think Geno Smith is a very capable, uh, competent quarterback. I don't. I just don't know if he wins you some critical, tough games, especially down the stretch and in the playoffs. So I could see the Seahawks winning, you know, ten games. Is that enough to win the conference? I don't know. I think the predictor is eleven. I would think probably more cl closer to ten, maybe eleven. You know, there's seventeen games now. Um, so are they going to be better than San Diego? I mean, I'm sorry, they're not in the AFC West anymore. Are, are they going to be better than San Francisco? That's what I meant. I don't know that they're going to be better than the San Francisco 49ers. So if you were to ask me, I would predict the San Francisco 49ers win a division, better defense. Um, and, you know, they have a young quarterback that looks like he might really be the real deal. And I'm a huge Debo Sanders fan. You know, I really love McCaffrey when he's healthy at the running back spot. So they got a lot of juice down there in San Francisco. I still get the print edition of Sports Illustrated. So, <laughs> okay. yeah, the SI predicts it's just one one yeah. prediction uh, mm -hmm. um, entity or whatever mm -hmm. you want to call it, magazine. But they predict well, Husky, the Seahawks go eleven and six. Mm -hmm. uh, but we'll see. Well, Greg, that's my final question. I'll let you go. Is um, just about Pac twelve football this year. Anything fans should look out for? Any players? Any any little nuggets that fans should look out for this year? Well, I just think overall the Pac-12, which is just ironic, these things, you know, tend to play out this way, has gotten stronger over the last several years. And now you have a really, really strong conference top to bottom, and it's going to be the last year of Pac-12 football, which is unfortunate. So I think this conference is going to go out with a bang. You're going to see five, six teams that are going to have eight, nine wins and only losing because they're knocking each other off. I think we'll have a great non-conference win-loss record. We'll have a great bowl game, you know, end-of-the-year reference uh, record uh, because they're going to be some really strong teams coming out of the Pac-12. Um, if one of them can limit it to just one Pac-12 loss and get into that playoff, I think they can be dangerous. I think the Huskies might be the most dangerous out of those teams because they can score on anybody. And if our defense is – takes the jump from 100 to say down to 40 or 35, I think we could be in the running to, you know, compete with some of those teams. Uh, I, I remember the last time we made the playoff, we weren't tough enough on the offensive side to score lots of points against a team like Alabama. I think right now we can score 35 points against Alabama. Just a matter of can our defense hold them to 34 or less. <laughs> All right. One more quick question. I'll make it really quick. And you got to get out of here. I know that. Um, 
would there be any poetic justice? You and I are both Huskies. If say Washington State, Oregon State won the Pac-12 this year in the lame duck Pac-12 season. No, I would hate that. I would absolutely hate that, that that happens. I don't think that uh, I, it, it's no one else's fault necessarily that the conference fell apart. That's a member school. So it like, it serves, you know, the other 10 teams, right. That Washington state, Oregon state went, I think it was a leadership thing from the top, as I've said and repeated a couple of times. So, you know, um, I, I don't think there should be any solace just because Washington state and Oregon state got left out of being acquired. Some of that is due to their um, uh, inability to, you know, have football invested at the levels that some of the other schools have. Fair enough. I've just heard a few Husky fans say that behind the scenes. But, uh, Greg, thank you so much. I look forward to seeing you again soon. What a great hour. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, Paul. Good to see you. See you soon, Greg. Thank you. Bye-bye.